You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let me invite you to open your Bible to Joshua chapter 24. We finally made it to the final chapter of Joshua as we've been marching verse by verse. And I told you last week, I preached all the other 24 chapters so that we could finally get to verse 15. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, some of you have this verse on welcome mats on your front porch, some of you have it hanging somewhere in your home. I want us to read it here this morning, let's all get our eyes on this verse, Joshua 24 verse 15, it says this, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river, those were the old gods, but then if you're not happy with the old gods, there are new gods available. He says the gods of the Amorite in whose land you now dwell, but here's the famous part, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, how many of you were with us last week? We talked about how we all have a choice to serve the Lord. And hopefully you were here last week and in a fresh new way, or maybe for the very first time, you said, I am going to choose to serve the Lord. This day, my choice is the Lord. And we talked about how it's not a matter of whether you will serve, you will serve a God. The question is, which God will you serve? So last week, we talked about the me. It was an individual choice. This morning, we're going to talk about my house. Here's the big idea of the message. The direction of my house will be determined by the ruler of my heart. Here's what we're going to do this morning. Last week, if you were here, we talked about an individual choice. We talked about the me part of that verse. And hopefully last week, you chose to serve the Lord. But what we're going to learn is our choice is going to extend beyond ourselves. Yes, I'm going to challenge you to think beyond yourself this morning. I know that's a challenge in our very individualistic, autonomous society. But I want you to think beyond yourself because this morning, we're going to learn how my choice is going to affect my house. You see, there are other people and other things in your house. How many of you have some little me's in your house? Are there some others? How many of you have more than one little me in your house? And the decisions you're going to make is going to impact the little me's. But it's not just people, it's stuff. There is some stuff. And there are some things. I think I could draw a car this morning. That's a really bad car. But there's stuff that the Lord has given us, and that's what makes up our house. Let's talk about what is this house. When Joshua said, as for me, we know who the me was, but what was the house. And not just what was Joshua's house, what is your house? What does it mean? Well, we're going to define the house this way. A house, your house, is everyone and everything God has given you that you are responsible for. You got it? Now, I want you to begin to make a list in your mind. Some of you, when we talked about the little me's, you should be thinking about the names of the little me's in your house. You got them? If you're married, that would include your spouse. If you're a parent, that would include your children. How many of you still have little me's living in your house? Okay. I mean, you have little me's taking over your house. Uh, messing up your house, okay? Well, that's part of your house, but it's, it goes beyond people to stuff. How many of you, God has given you some stuff? How many of you would like God to bless your stuff? There's something you can do to get God's blessing on your stuff. Here's the two things we need to think about when we think about the inventory in our house. First of all, it all came from God, which means 
I should thank him. How often do you thank him for your spouse and you thank him for your children? And then beyond your, the people in your house, thank him for the stuff. Every dollar in every bank account, every car, every piece of clothing, every piece of furniture, every golf club, every rat that's in the basement. I don't know. All the stuff in your house. Everything comes from God. And here's the second thing. Everything in your house, listen, is to be used in service to God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to use the stuff in our house to serve the Lord. Is that true of the stuff and the people that God has given. What does God say about our house? There's a lot of different verses in the scripture that mention a house. Let's look at this one. Proverbs 3, verse 33 says this, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. How many of you want to sign up for that plan? You want an alternative plan? Here's a better plan. But he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. And so there are two distinct ways that we can deploy our house. We can either to use it to serve righteous purposes or we can use it to serve wicked purposes. And whichever choice you make is going to determine whether or not you receive the Lord's blessing or you receive the Lord's curse. I don't know about you, I want to sign up for the blessing plan. Anybody with me here this morning? That's what we're going for in this message. Here's another verse about our house. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Now, I just want to take this opportunity to let you know that the blessing that is in my house and on my house is primarily due to a very wise woman um, that manages and builds the house that I am living in. I am the recipient of the blessing of a very wise woman named Andrea that has built a house that is receiving the blessing of God. And the wisest of men will stay out of the way of a wise woman who is building her house. But a wise man will step into a situation where there is a foolish woman tearing it down. And so we are responsible for what's going on in our house. And our responsibility is to build it. There's some things we have to do to build a house that receives God's blessing. Proverbs 24 verse 3 says this, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. It's hard to build a house that serves the Lord. Everything in our society is going to stand against you building a home that is used in service for the Lord. And so there's got to be wisdom and forethought about the intentional choices you make in the house. It's built with understanding. Proverbs 120, I'm sorry, Psalm 127 verse 1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. And so you can be a really good person. You can be a really smart person. You can put a bunch of rules up in your house. But if that house is not dedicated to and used in service for the Lord, you're wasting your time. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so we want God's blessing on our house. Let me ask you, um, who is living in your house? Now, there's a lot of different living situations here. I've lived in different circumstances. And when we talk about a house, understand we're not talking about a residence that you may have a quarter-acre lot or a five-acre lot. That's one type of house. Of course, we think of that. But some of you live in apartments. How many of you live in an apartment? Okay. How many of you live, um, how many of you live alone? I remember there was a season I lived alone, and I kind of liked living alone because I never had a fight with myself. I never argued with myself, you know. 
And uh, if the house was messy, there was nobody to blame but me. So I could clean it up. I could leave it messy if I wanted to because nobody cared. It was just me. And so there's there some advantages of living by yourself. How many of you live, um, anybody live um, in a trailer? You probably wouldn't admit it in church. Uh, for 15 years, it's what I did. And uh, it's amazing. In 400 square feet, six people living in 400 square feet, mobile, everything you own had to fit in the trailer. Life's really simple. Uh, that way. When your house is small, your problems seem to be a little smaller. I don't know about you, but the bigger my houses get, the more complex it is, I, the more time I have to spend painting it and repairing it and, and, and spending money on it. So whether you live in a house or an apartment or a condo or a trailer or whether or not this morning as a man you're living in the doghouse, we need to understand that there are some responsibilities we have to make this house useful in service to the Lord. Here's, a, here's the next question. What is happening in your house? What is the atmosphere in your house? What's the tone? What are the words? What are the attitudes in your house? Is that atmosphere something that you are pleased with? What direction is your house moving? You know what the promise of Joshua 24, 15 is? It is this, that no matter what's going on in your house, it can be changed with a choice by me. Understanding that my choices are going to affect the atmosphere in my home. That's what we're going after today. Now, some of us are more concerned with what's happening in the White House than what's happening in my house. Do you understand that, really, you've got relatively little influence in the White House, and yet you have amazing influence at your house? And my prayer, and one of the purposes of this church, is to get people to build a house that is so beautiful and so attractive and so influential that if enough of us were able to build a house that serves the Lord, it would spill over into neighborhoods, it would spill over into churches, it would spill over into schools, it would spill over into communities, it would spill over into a nation and eventually affect what's happening at the White House. If you want to impact what's happening at the White House, you might want to spend a little more time working on what's happening in your house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, as you read that, the question that I've asked of this passage is this. How could Joshua be so bold in his declaration to believe that his choice was going to determine the choices of the other little me's in his family. It's a pretty bold statement, right? It's almost as if he made the choice for the family. Does that mean he brought all of his family together and he said, you're going to serve the Lord, and I'm going to put my foot on your neck until you say, uncle, you're serving the Lord along with me, right? Is that what Joshua did? No. I believe Joshua had such respect from his family. I believe they had watched him for a hundred years or however long that they had lived with him, and his choices and his integrity and his influence and his courage and his boldness and his prayer life were so attractive that everybody made the same choice because they wanted the same blessing that he saw on Joshua's house. You want that blessing on your house? You want to make the choice and have everybody say, hey, we want to make that choice with you? Then there's three things that we're going to have to do. Here's three commitments I want to challenge you to make. If you want a distinctly Christian home that serves the Lord, here's three choices we're going to have to make. Would you make this choice? My house will be established by commitment. I don't want to race too, pass, too fast past the obvious here. That Joshua was not just an individual. He was the leader of a household. Now, in order to become a leader of a household, you must make a commitment. 
And the obvious commitment, there's two obvious commitments here. First of all, he had made the commitment to the Lord that this would be a house that serves the Lord. That's a vertical commitment. We talked about that last week. Hope you've made that. But once you've made the vertical commitment to the Lord, it spills over into a horizontal commitment to everyone and everything else in your house. How does a commitment get established? I lived the first 27 years of my life as an individual. I lived from the age of 15 to 27 as one committed that this individual would be serving the Lord. But at the age of 27, on December the 17th, 1994, at 2 p.m., I stood in front of a wonderful woman that I had deceived into marrying me. Actually, I won her heart. And I committed my life to this woman. And she committed her life to me. And we established a new house through the covenant Love, commitment of something called, wait for it, wait for it, it's a new concept, marriage. Have you heard of it? Have you heard of it? It was not an institution of man. It was an institution created by God. God initiated marriage. He's the only one that has the right to define it. And until God terminates it, we have no right to terminate it either, either the institution or the individual commitment. My house will be established by commitment. So how's it going at your house? Now, listen, as, as we talk about this, there, there was a study that came out this week. It was by Pew Research, a, a research firm does lots of surveying, very scientific surveys, and they, they stumbled onto a discovery, something new that is happening in our culture today that hasn't happened for 130 years. Here's what they found out. <clears throat> that adults between the ages of 18 and 34, those are the millennials, they discovered that the most likely house that that age group lives in is in mom and dad's house. Now, if you're between the ages of 18 and 34 and you're living at mom and dad's house, there could be some very good reasons for that to happen. But if the reason you're still living at mom and dad's house is because you are afraid of a commitment to establish your own house, you might want to get with the program and grow up and make a choice to establish a new house. Marriage is God's tool to scrub off selfishness from your life. You see, marriage and selfishness are mortal enemies of one another. Marriage will kill selfishness. Thought I might get an amen out of somebody out of there. Is, how many of you, your wife, your, your husband is doing a pretty good job scrubbing off, at least exposing some selfishness in your life? You see, if you go through your entire life without actually living in a house with a mate, you might think you're not a very selfish person. I didn't think I was a very selfish person for 27 years. I've lived the last 21 years with a mirror in front of me that is reflecting my selfishness. It's called a spouse. And marriage will kill selfishness. Here's the flip side of that coin. Selfishness will kill your marriage. Selfishness and marriage cannot peacefully coexist. And so it is through the establishment of a marriage commitment that God sanctifies the selfishness in my life. Another thing that that Pew Research article found was this, that it is likely 
that one in four Americans now will go through their entire lives without getting married. One in four. Now, there, there are purposes for singleness. Do you know about this? As a matter of fact, I, I hope you hear that I, I am not down on singleness. When I was single, I had freedom to serve the Lord that I don't have anymore. The Bible actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that uh, a married man is concerned and anxious about his wife, and he should be. If you are married and you're not concerned about your wife, you're not a very good married person. But if you are married, you have concerns, and you have to serve your wife. That peels off layers that you could actually use, time, resources, to serve the Lord. If you are a single person, do you, have, do you understand you have freedom to serve the Lord in the ways that married people don't? Use your singleness to serve the Lord. But if you're using your singleness to serve yourself, you might want to consider the benefits of marriage to scrub off some of the selfishness in your life. And so God's number one tool to sanctify our selfishness is marriage. God designed marriage as that number one tool to scrub off some of our selfishness. Now, in our culture, <clears throat> interestingly, as the desire to get married declines, the desire for love, companionship, relationship, and sex has not declined. So what do you do with a person who wants the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage? We come up with all kinds of alternatives to God, God's plan, and um, one of those that is increasingly popular is to move into the same house and live together pretending to be married, everything but a commitment. And the arguments are incredibly foolish for this type of arrangement. People that say, well, you know, before you buy a new car, you want to test drive it? That's right, because your relationship with the car is a performance-based relationship. Marriage is not a performance-based relationship. What you're saying is, I want a performance-based relationship with the other person. If this other person performs well, if they make me happy, and if they do all the things that I expect them to do, then I'll stay in the relationship. But the moment the performance declines, I'm going to look for another vehicle. That's what you're saying. Now, it's interesting. If you, if, if you didn't even look at the Bible, which we don't do much around here, but just think about it. If you just looked at sociology, would it be a wise choice for two people to live in the same house, pretending to be married without a commitment? Do you understand that couples who live together prior to marriage, once they get married, they have twice as likely a probability to divorce as those who don't live together prior to marriage. So does that make sense? No, that doesn't make sense. Do you understand that couples who live together are eight times as likely to cheat on one another as married couples? Why? Because you're undermining the trust in the relationship if you're trying to pretend to be married without establishing the commitment People say it all the time to me. They say, well, we're, we're married in our hearts. You know, we've been together for so long. We're just married in our hearts. You're married in your pants. That's your motivation. And we give me that stuff about married in your heart. Other people say, well, we're married in God's eyes. You're sinning in God's eyes. You're inviting a curse rather than a blessing if you're pretending to be married without the commitment. And if you're having sex together before you're married, sex outside of the marriage commitment, do you understand what you're saying to your partner? You are saying to your partner, I am the kind of person who will have sex with a person that I am not married to. 
So what happens when you actually do get married to this person? You are now living with your spouse, and your spouse knows you are the kind of person who will have sex with someone you are not married to. Do you understand how that undermines the trust and the, the commitment there? Make the commitment. I know what you're saying. We don't need a piece of paper. Yes, you do. You need a piece of paper. Why? Because five years, ten years down the road, when your spouse looks at you and you're ten pounds heavier than you were on the day that they made that commitment to you, and they see someone else, and life is hard, and marriage is requiring scrubbing off some of the selfishness in your life, and your spouse says, you know what, I don't think I feel like being married anymore. See that piece of paper right there? Do you see your name right there where you signed this commitment? I'm just here to remind you, buddy, that's the commitment that you made. Till death do you part. And then the 500 people that showed up at your wedding to witness that, they're one, they, they'll be there. Hey, I saw, I saw you make that, that vow. That's a commitment, buddy. You're staying in this thing. Have you made the commitment? I realize I'm probably talking to some people that are living, right, living together right now in the seats getting hot and your heart's beating out of your chest and you're looking for an exit door. Hey, welcome to Harvest. We're glad you're here. <laughs> and I will be glad to perform your wedding ceremony at the earliest possible date. Make the commitment. Two people living together without a commitment will tear each other apart. But two people living together with a marriage commitment is the greatest tool that God has to show the gospel to the world because the world is going to watch how you deal with sin. They're going to watch whether or not you can forgive and love one another on your worst day. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did to us. He loved us on our worst day. He forgave our worst sin. Marriage is the greatest place to reflect the glory of God. So what is this commitment? Now, we like to use this definition around here. It's a little verbose, but it's kind of cramming everything the Bible has to say about this marriage commitment together. Here is what marriage is. You establish the commitment of marriage when you say marriage is this. Marriage is a holy covenant initiated by God, conditioned on an irrevocable promise to pursue oneness with an imperfect person of the opposite sex for a lifetime for the glory of God. Now you're looking at that going, that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, that's what you did. And that's what you're still doing today. And so don't stop now. It doesn't stop on the day that you make the commitment. You get up every morning, you renew the commitment, you go after it again, you understand I'm living with an imperfect person, this person's gonna hurt me today, they're gonna disappoint me, they're gonna let me down. But you know what, by the grace of God, we're locking arms, I made the commitment, it's a holy covenant, we've got the help of God, and we're gonna live this thing out for a lifetime for the glory of God, we're going to the finish line because all of the other little me's in my house are watching how it turns out. That's what marriage is. So have you made the commitment? Have you established that as a permanent commitment in your home? Here's the second thing. He's like, dude, that was enough. No, we got two more. <laughs> My house will be led by conviction. Now, the commitment is one thing, but the conviction to live it out has to be a passion in my soul. Commitment without conviction will be short-lived. So we need the conviction. Now, I want you to notice the conviction here in this text by Joshua. He says here in verse 16, so he makes this famous declaration, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How did the people respond to that? Verse 16, and the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. Good answer, good answer. Is that, that a good answer? Oh, wow, these people are with the program. 
Verse 17, they go on, they elaborate. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went among all those peoples through whom we passed. Verse 18, the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, echo, you're about to hear an echo. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. It's almost like, man, they're high-fiving each other. They're slapping backs. They're like, yes, we're all going together. This is such a wonderful celebration. This is, this is awesome. And the scene goes back to Joshua in verse 19. What do you think Joshua's going to say to these people? You think he's going to go out there and high-five them and say, way to go, it's exactly what I wanted to hear from you? Notice verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. That was kind of a downer. Come on, Joshua. We're trying here. Apparently, Joshua realized they were trying to make a commitment without the conviction. And so Joshua reminds them of three convictions that had to be so ingrained in their soul that he knew their commitment wasn't going to last unless they made these, unless they had these three convictions. First of all, he says this: you can't serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. You know what Joshua wants to remind them of? God is holy. Is that a conviction in your heart? Are you just playing games with God? Is really what you want is less chaos in your house? Is that your ultimate goal? Is that all you want? If that's all you want, it's not going to last. The reason for making the choice is understanding my house is established by God. It is to be a place where God's holiness is seen and known and transferred and meditate upon. So he says, you, you're not going to be able to make this. You can't serve God without understanding God is holy. And then he says there's, there's something else. He's jealous God. God is jealous. Now listen, it is a sin for you to be jealous. It is holy for God to be jealous. God loves you so much. He wants reciprocal love toward him that is not challenged by any other thing you love. Not a wife, not a child, not a house, not an amount of money. God wants your whole heart, and he doesn't want you committing spiritual adultery on him, giving love that belongs to God to another God with a little g. God is jealous. And then here's the third thing he reminds them of. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. You talk about a downer. Now, you have to remember this is written before Jesus Christ. And we understand looking back on this that God does not overlook sin. God looks at our sin with intense blazing hatred as he sees it on the cross in Jesus Christ for those of us who are in Christ. Outside of Christ, God will not forgive your sin. He's not playing games. There is only one substitute for sin. It is the righteous atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. God doesn't overlook sin. If you by faith have not transferred your sin to Jesus Christ on the cross and embraced him by faith, God will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And so, He's telling us there has to be this conviction. God is holy. God is jealous. And God is serious about sin. Now, those are theological convictions. But what about the real practical day-to-day stuff of life that happens in your home? For our family, I kind of thought back on the 21 years that we've been a house and the themes that have filled our house, the things that we've done intentionally to saturate our home with an environment. And I thought of five things that were convictions that we have said we are going to fill our house with these five things. First of all, worship. 
God wants our attention. And so that means that usually when the alarm clocks start going up, the first thing that happens in our home is people start reaching for Bibles because we want to hear from God. He demands our first, he demands our best, and we want to get our eyes on our instructions for the day. And then we want to respond to him in prayer. God acknowledging this is a house that's going to be used to serve you. I'm choosing this day to serve the Lord individually. And as we go out and start engaging the other little me's in our family, we're going to use this environment to serve the Lord. We fill our home with worship. Now, worship is not something that happens on the weekend. It happens gathered on the weekends at church, but it happens individually and as a family all through the week. There are times that we gather the family around, and we say we're going to have family worship, and we're going to open our Bibles together. We're all going to get our eyes on the same page. We're going to hear the instruction of God, and we're going to respond to it, and we're going to talk about what's going on. Now, listen, I'm talking to some men here, and as the man, as the leader, as the head in your home, you need to establish these convictions. You say, oh, I don't really know much about the Bible. Can I help you get started? Let me tell you what I usually do, okay? <clears throat> I have a degree in theology. This is still the way I do it. I will bring my Bible to the dinner table. I will open it up to a section of Scripture. If I can't think of anywhere else to go, I look at the calendar. Oh, today is the 26th. Proverbs 26 seems the Lord's leading me to Proverbs 26 here today. And I'll read one or two or three verses out of Proverbs 26. And then I will look at the youngest child and I'll say, what do you think that means? They will offer their answer. I'll turn to the next oldest child and say, what do you think that means? I'll get that opinion. After we go through all the children, I'll eventually turn to my wife. Andrea's like, what do you think that means? And she'll give her answer. Now I have six multiple choice opportunities to select the best answer and say, you know, that's exactly what I was thinking. Now, 90% of the time, it's what Andrea said. Guys, it's usually going to be what your wife says, okay? And just say, that is, that is incredible. You know, that's exactly what our family needs. Can we, just, can we just bow our heads here today and recommit ourselves to walking these verses out? And in doing so, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to become the pastor of your home. I am not the pastor of your house. I'm the pastor of this church. You are the pastor of your house. You are the worship leader in your home. And so what will your home be filled with? If you don't make the intentional choice, it's going to be filled with worshiping other gods. Here's another thing. Kindness, usually expressed through words, I don't know about you, not all the words that are expressed in our home build one another up. And so Andrea and I are like heat-seeking missiles when we hear someone else in our home tearing another down. Sometimes it's me and Andrea tearing one another down, and we have to say, whoa, this is not kindness being expressed here. We're not going to use our words to tear each other. We are on the same team. We are in the same house. We have enough enemies on the outside of our house. We're not going to create enemies on the inside of the house. We're on the same team. We're moving in the same direction. We're going onward together, so we better be kind to each other. And then joy. Joy is not just happiness. But listen, if you're going to have some serious discussions about the holiness of God, the jealousy of God, and the fact that He takes sin seriously... There better be some other moments to balance that out where you are on the floor giggling and laughing with snot bubbles coming out of your nose. Something so hilarious is happening in the home. This is a regular thing for us. And, and, and I got to tell you, I'm, I'm the worst culprit here um, in, in not fulfilling this responsibility. There is a question that gets asked to me every week, and it's this question. Dad, is the sermon done? Because they know I am a grump until the sermon has been written. 
Sometimes that means I'm a grump from Thursday through Friday into Saturday until 5 o'clock Saturday night when the Saturday night service starts. And then finally that burden is released and I can smile and be happy. But you know what? I need to be joyful all the time no matter what kind of pressure I'm under, no matter how difficult the circumstances are. I remember... In the second year of this church, those of you that are new to Harvest, you may not know about this, but in the second year of our church, my wife, Andrea, was diagnosed with cancer. That's kind of a downer. I mean, Lord, here I am trying to serve you, and we're using our home to serve the Lord. We're building this church while we're building our family, and you allow Andrea to get cancer? Listen, we prayed all through that. We gathered the family around. We had to let the children know this is very serious, and we don't know what's going to happen here, but we need to trust the Lord together. And, and I re remember we let the children kind of weigh in. It's like, do you have any questions? What, what's going through your mind right now? And after all the questions, I remember my, my youngest child, Leah, who, by the way, turned 13 yesterday. Pray for me. She, uh, she turned 13 yesterday, but she was like, six at the time, something like that, and I remember the question she asked. It was a really somber moment in our family, and she said, Mom, will you still be able to dance in the kitchen? I mean, does cancer kind of wipe out dancing? Maybe in most homes. In our house, we're still going to dance. And, and by the way, good news, um, Cancer removed, healing granted, no chemo, no radiation. Andrea's doing great, and she still dances in the kitchen. And we all dance with her because we want our house to be filled with joy, no matter what's going on. And our home has to be filled with forgiveness because I don't know about you, but I blow it every day. And there's usually not a day or two that goes by before I have to go to somebody in my family and say, uh, that was not my finest moment. I was grumpy. I wasn't filled with joy. I wasn't kind, and I didn't have a worshiping heart. I need a fresh start and forgiveness. Would you please forgive me? And because we know that we have been forgiven vertically by God, we bend the forgiveness out and grant it to others. You say, you don't know what they've done to me. You're right. I don't know what they've done to you. But I do know what you, by your sin, have done to Jesus Christ. And he forgave. How can you withhold forgiveness from somebody who's hurt you? I don't know what they did to you, but it wasn't anything compared to what your sin did to Christ. As we've been forgiven, we forgive. And then finally, our house will be filled with ministry. Our house will be filled with ministry. That means that we understand we're going to lock arms together and use all of the assets to serve the Lord. I remember a few years ago, we, um, we do this actually regularly. We, we actually do it every week. I don't know if you understand this, but um, this church has been served while I've been building this house. We as a family have been building this church, and, and there's so many times that there's tension in the home, and we're not being kind to one another, and, and we, we, we go and we serve. We get outside of our house, get outside of ourselves, and we focus on what the purpose of our home is, and it changes the whole attitude in the family. A few years ago, we went down to serve a meal at Hope Ministries, homeless shelter in downtown South Bend, and, and our kids were grumpy and they didn't want to go and they're fighting over the seats in the car and and they're fighting over what music we're going to listen to on the way down there and and we get out of the car and we go spend an hour or two serving homeless people in downtown South Bend coming out of the homeless shelter children are skipping holding hands opening the door for one another would you like this seat you pick the next song what happened we used our home for the purpose for which it was created. And it invited the blessing of God. It changes your whole attitude when you get outside of yourself and build something other than your house. I'm so grateful for people in this church that have used their family to serve. I don't know if you know this right now. I mean, your, your, fam, your family is being served by other families in this church this very moment. I'm, I'm grateful for it. There's a family in our church. Do you know about the Spear family? 
Do you know about these people? I mean, we, we have 300 volunteers who work in our Harvest Kids ministry. Half of them are spears, okay? <laughs> I mean, they're everywhere, holding babies, cleaning up messes. They're, and that's a, that's a wonderful example. About 4 o'clock every Friday afternoon, I'm in my office preparing this message and getting ready, and um, a little 10-year-old boy will walk in. He's got a, a duster, and he starts dusting in my office. His name is Owen. He's a kid that was adopted by Darren and Chrissy Green years ago. And while he's in there dusting my office, Steve is in, Stephen is in another office. He's probably 13. He's dusting another office. And I don't know where Maverick is, but he's doing something. And uh, Darren and Chrissy, they're cleaning. They're, they've used their family to serve the Lord as a ministry. What is your family doing? What is happening at your house, but what is happening beyond your house have you established the commitment? Have you led by conviction? And then thirdly, have you made this choice? My house will be involved in God's mission. Notice here in verse uh, 23, Joshua said, you want to keep that commitment? Put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 24, And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. Look down at verse 28. And Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This whole scene closes with Joshua sending the people away. Now, that may just sound like a very passive thing. That was the result of 24 chapters of walking by faith. That was the result of 400 years of God defeating enemies, clearing a path, granting them a place where they could establish their houses, raise their children, and live out the promises of God. It was not an accident, and it was not unintentional that Joshua sent them. They didn't just passively walk away. They were commissioned. They were sent by God to serve the Lord in the land, in the house of their inheritance. Um, Don Schimber led worship this morning. Uh, I appreciated Don doing that, and that was awesome. And uh, Don um, got married a year ago to Rachel, and I got to do their premarital counseling. And um, during their premarital counseling, I reminded them of what I remind every person I do premarital counseling with. Uh, number one, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. Number two, you're believing a myth that your marriage will be strengthened by spending exclusive one-on-one, face-to-face -on -one, -face time with one another, and that's what's going to get you through. Now, there is an element of that is very true. Some of you need to go spend some face-to-face -face time with one another because you've neglected that. You need to go have a date. You need to go sit down and talk. You need to get some face-to-face -face time with, together. But newlyweds already know that. What they need to hear is this. Your home will be strengthened and your marriage will be established not only with face-to-face -face time, but with side-by-side -side time. Get your eyes off of each other and get it onto God's mission and lock arms together side-by-side -side, doing something together outside of your marriage. If all you do is face-to-face -face time, if you're so focused on one another, you're going to cannibalize each other. It's like two ticks looking for a dog. You just suck the life out of one another. The expectations are so high. You're going to meet my, I just can't, I'm so glad to be married to you. Now meet my every longing. And pretty soon you're like, I don't think a God created another person that can meet the deepest longings of my heart. So what do I have to do? Hey, why don't we do something together outside of the marriage? 
And I always hear this, you know, we're going to wait on having children because, you know, the children, they just will get in the way of our face-to-face time. That's right. They force you to work side-by-side, don't they? And focus on something outside of you. And it is in the building of children and the building of a house and the building of a church or the building of God's kingdom that your home and your marriage is used to serve something beside yourself. Are you using your home to serve anything other than yourself? I want to challenge you to do something as we finish this message. I want you this week to write a family mission statement. Do you know what a mission statement is? Ray, could you hand me that piece of paper right there? I want to read to you a mission statement from an organization that you may or may not be aware of, if I can find it. There it is. See if you can identify this mission statement. You know what a mission statement is? It's kind of, it answers the question, why does this organization exist? Our church has a mission statement. Harvest Bible Chapel exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Simple, direct, clear, urgent, simple, right? We exist to fulfill the Great Commission, which means we make disciples around here. If you want to be a disciple, you're going to fit right in here. If you want to make disciples, you're going to fit right in around here. If that's not why you exist, you're not going to fit in here at all. But I want you to listen to this mission statement. I want you to write your own mission statement as a family. Listen to this. See if you can guess what organization this is. We provide knowledge and take action to ensure national security. In pursuit of our country's interest, we put nation before agency, agency before unit, all before self. What we do matters. Our mission requires complete personal integrity and courage, physical and intellectual courage. We accomplish things others cannot, often at great risk. When the stakes are the highest and the dangers are the greatest, we are there, and we are there first. We stand by one another and behind one another, Service, sacrifice, flexibility, teamwork are our hallmarks. Anybody know what that is? Central Intelligence Agency. Now, did you notice anything about their mission statement? Was there anything in that mission statement that said we exist to serve ourselves? No. It is completely and entirely focused on something outside of the agency. What about your house? Are you using your house to serve the mission and the purposes of God? Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're using all of it as an asset to serve the Lord. Let's bow our heads. And before we continue, would you just tell the Lord individually, Lord, I want to re-up again today. I want to choose again today to serve you with my life. Tell him that. And then think about your house, the people, the things. What changes need to take place in your house to get beyond yourself? Have you established the commitment? Have you led with conviction? Are you involved in God's mission? Father, today we want to acknowledge that everything that we have in our house is a gift from you. We receive it with gratefulness. And Lord, today we want to go on record that our house does not exist to serve our selfishness. It exists to serve the Lord. And so we say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.